0: today's guest is a superstar and it's one of those rare instances where I read an article that she'd written, uh, an op-ed for the LA Times, um, and immediately emailed her. Googled her, emailed her and was like, can you please be on the show? And she was kind enough to accept. This is Dr. Rita Redberg. Uh, By the way, that's such a beautiful name. It sounds like a, <laughs> like a, like like an actress from the golden era of Hollywood. Dr. Rita Redberg is professor of medicine at UCSF. She's a cardiologist and does a lot of other things that we'll get into. And she is here to talk about all the things. Rita Redberg, welcome to the show.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a thrill. So this is what prompted me, and I want to start the whole thing, just mm-hmm. go strong on this. You wrote an article about cardiac stents in an op-ed in the LA Times. And it was basically saying, hey, your doctor may think you need this stent. Uh, Here's why you may not, more or less. And how a lot of what we do in medicine is, it's not just not helpful, it can be harmful. And I wanna dive right into that. Why did you write that piece, and why has this been a passion of yours in general?
1: Okay, so I wrote the piece. I'm a cardiologist, and for many years, I've been taking care of people with heart disease, like we do. And it has been also clear to me for many years, and particularly in the last 10 years, that we are doing a lot more stents than we need to be.
0: Even over 10 years? Even over the last 10 years? Oh, yes. Because it seems like we've always been doing stents, to me.
1: Right. I actually... I was a cardiology fellow in the 80s and we had just started doing procedures in people's arteries to try to open them up in the 80s. And so I kind of grew up with the idea that we were going to open up people's arteries and this would make them better.
0: And you were trained in it as well. then.
1: And I was trained in it. And then it only, you know, in the last 15, 20 years started to question it for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. But that particular piece got me Got what got me going on that was another trial called the ischemia trial had been released at the American Heart Association meeting. And this trial compared people who got stents and people who got medicines uh, in who had blockages in their arteries. And they took people with severe blockages, with a lot of chest pain, a lot of symptoms. They randomized them. I mean, the trial was done pretty close to perfectly as trials go. You know, they really had thought about it very carefully for many years. And the results of that trial show that the people that got medicines did as well as the people that got stents. They were, they lived just as long. They had just as few heart attacks. And any way that you slice it, like if you look and see, well, if they had more severe disease, did they do better with stents? No. You know, if they had more positive test results from treadmill tests, did they do better with stents? No. And I thought, you know, th- this is now about the 15th trial or so that has shown that same thing. But this trial was really carefully designed to address the, what was criticized in every previous trial. And so I thought it's time to really think about we need to change practice in cardiology and stop sending people for stents when we haven't even offered them medical management because there's so many risks to stents and you know people can have heart attacks they can have strokes they can have kidney failure they can even die doesn't happen a lot but if you can do just as well with medical management why send people off for stents without even trying medical management.
0: So what's crazy to me and what really got me interested in that when I read your article is that this has been the conventional wisdom in medicine since I, I mean, I trained in the late nineties, early two thousands at Stanford, huge mm-hmm. cardiac program, right? We stented everything that looked at us Right. and it was a badge of honor and we felt like we were doing good. And it was, it, it, I mean, you felt like lives were being saved right there versus doing nothing. or And that's right. what medical management felt like. Well, you know, a beta blocker and a statin, and a, uh-huh. you know, how, how is that, controlling blood pressure, how is that helping this person with three-vessel coronary disease? I mean, the analogy being all the pipes are clogged up, you need a rotor router to go in there, right. and you need something to stand open this thing, and it just made sense. And so, but then when it was looked at, like you said, and what's interesting about the ischemia trial that you mentioned is, it was designed kind of to address some of the criticisms of maybe other oh, drugs, yes. and, and and so you know what 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 if I what if I come back with you, Rita, and I say well, but maybe it's treating pain better, maybe we're controlling symptoms better. Is that even true?
1: Mm-hmm. So that's a really good question. I think the investigators they did some of the quality of life and pain assessments and said that people did better who had stents. I personally. I think it's a great trial. That is the part I do not believe because it was not a blinded trial. Oh. You know, in order, I mean, we know there's a placebo effect to doing procedures. Mm-hmm. And when you have a subjective endpoint and, you know, pain is a very subjective endpoint, we know that people, you know, get relief from all kinds of things that like procedures for sure, like 60% of people will feel better after having a procedure, just even though it was a sham or a fake procedure. And in fact, for 20 years, I've been saying, how do we know? It's the stent that makes a difference. We have to have a blinded study. We always do blinded studies with drugs. Like if you're going to test a drug, you're going to take a drug and compare it to a sugar pill because otherwise you can't rule out it's a placebo effect to the drug. But for some reason with devices, even though the placebo effect is so much more powerful with devices than drugs, we very rarely do that. But it just happens a few years ago, a very um, clever and brave, I think, British group did a study with just that. So they randomized people, everyone had blockages, they all had very severe coronary disease. They all got medicines and they all thought they got a stent. Whoa! But, but actually half of them got a stent and the other half didn't.
0: So so they actually would get the percutaneous intervention but they wouldn't have the stent deployed. Exactly. So a sham yes. angioplasty exactly. yeah, or, or stent, yeah.
1: And guess what? What happened? There was no difference oh, dear in chest pain. Oh. That was a negative study. They increased their exercise time exactly the same as the people that got the real stent and the fake stent their change, their relief, they all felt better because they were getting medicines. The relief in symptoms was exactly the same between the fake stent and the real stent. The improvement in quality of life was exactly the same between the fake stent and the real stent. And so I think if you want to talk about symptoms, you have to have a placebo-controlled trial. You can't. Talk about did somebody improve on a subjective you know, symptom scale when placebo effect is very powerful. Now, placebo is certainly important, but let's call it what it is. Don't say it's the stent, it's the placebo effect. And, and why,
0: why that meant, okay, first of all, I had an emotional response to you saying this because uh-huh. think of the harm
1: uh-huh.
0: that we're potentially inflicting because we don't study these things correctly. Mm-hmm. And and the placebo effect in devices, like you said, can be stronger because it's a big intervention. So the mind-body response to that is, oh my gosh, they're doing this thing, they're putting in this device, or they're intervening in some physical way, therefore it must have an effect. Right. And the idea that doing these procedures is not without harm. Like, What are the harms of putting in a stent?
1: Well like you could have a heart attack, you could have a dissection in your, so we ruin the artery in your leg, you could die. You know, you get radiation from the whole procedure and so that increases your cancer risk, you get contrast and so that causes kidney problems for some people and you have to be on additional drugs like these dual antiplatelet agents so a lot of people will have bleeding problems, the stent itself can clot off and um, we we had analysis. someone I someone last week who had a stent clot off. It's a very uh, life threatening complication. So there, and it's and when I would say, like for the last twenty years, we can't say that angina, that chest pain, is relieved better with stents than with medical therapy, unless we do a placebo trial. And people would say to me, "But well, Rita, it's unethical to do placebo. We can't do fake procedures." I said, "Well, it's unethical not to do it." Otherwise, you're, you're taking millions of people and giving them this procedure, and you don't know whether it works any better than a dummy procedure.
0: You, you, you said it, it's unethical not to do it. Not to with do a placebo. A sham. To yes. do a sham, and, and you know what's important in this, so you mentioned all the complications, all of which we were training, all of which I've experienced mm-hmm. uh, as an internist consulting, or my patient goes to cath and has these complications. Um, we're talking about patients with angina and multivessel or single vessel coronary disease. We're not talking about acute myocardial infarction, are we?
1: That's correct. We're not talking about acute myocardial infarction where you're in the throes of a heart attack and then we know that stenting has an advantage. But right. we're talking about people that are having procedures electively. You know, they're they're scheduled for the procedure or they're having a lot of chest pain, or even if they're having a lot of chest pain, they're still, or if they have a lot of ischemia, if they have very positive treadmill tests, they were still included in this study and they still did equally well with medicines than they did with Stenson medicines.
0: Sick patients.
1: Yes, yeah. they were sick patients. And,
0: and when you talk about medical management, just so we can bring everyone up to speed, what are we talking about? Beta blockade, statins, blood pressure, other blood pressure control, what else do we do?
1: Um, nitrates, if you're having chest pain, and aspirin.
0: Got it. So, some symptomatic control and then aspirin. Um, and could that also include Plavix or other uh, higher? Sometimes in- it does. Yeah, rarely. Yes. Yeah. So, you have this armamentarium of mm-hmm. medical management. Right did they look at lifestyle management or stress management or smoking cessation or other issues in this trial?
1: They usually do. This trial was presented as a late breaker at the American Heart Association meeting. So the full paper hasn't been published. So we don't have all of the details of that trial, but definitely Zubin it's really important to pay attention to diet and physical activity and stop smoking and all of those things, no matter what arm of the study you're in.
0: Right. Right. And so, now we have this information. We have a body of evidence that suggests, and you know, you can have a little back and forth on details, but it mm-hmm. seems like, mm-hmm. and this is the thing that really hits you, is compared to a sham <laughs> procedure, there's no benefit. Right. So that means we're doing things that can harm people, that cost a ton of money, right. and remember, there's very little financial disclosure to patients. So, yes. oh, I'm an out-of-network cardiologist and a thing, you're gonna get a bill for $50,000. Like, right. So not only are we financially assaulting people inadvertently, we don't do this consciously, we, we are potentially causing them harm for something that the data now shows doesn't help beyond what we, our standard of care, Do you expect that cardiologists are going to change their practice? Have you seen any evidence they're gonna change their practice? I just keynoted at the transcatheter therapeutics thing in San Francisco. I was in front of 4,000 of these people, good, amazing physicians who are passionate about the technology and the humanity of what they do. Mm -hmm. Are we gonna convince them that one of their staple bread and butter procedures that they are not only, they don't only believe in probably, but they feel like this is part of my identity. This is what I do. I intervene when people are sick. I'm the guy who fixes them. And we tell them, actually, you could just give them medicines, which means a primary doc or a non-invasive cardiologist could do it. Are they gonna change their practice?
1: Well, Zubin, that's the billion dollar question. And that's exactly the group. And it is for all of those reasons you said. I mean, it is, true we have to acknowledge we have fifa service medicine largely in this country and as a cardiologist i would get paid a lot more to do a stent than i would to talk to you or to give you medicines mm. but it's also true that we have a lot of incredibly you know dedicated hard working cardiologists that believe just like you said that they are doing great things by putting stents in people and As I said, we started doing these procedures, well, you know, like in the 80s, 90s, and we've been doing them now for a long time. So Mm -hmm. there is a whole generation of cardiologists that grew up believing in this procedure. And everyone, like you saw at at TCT, everyone believes in this procedure. And that's very hard to change a culture. And that's why um, I think it's really important that we should, be, we should have done these studies that we just talked about 40 years ago. Mm. So before we start adopting a new study, a new practice, and before the FDA approves a new technology, we should require that there is high quality evidence that you're actually better off having, in this case, the device or the procedure then you would be not having it. Mm. But sadly, we didn't do that for stents, and we're still not doing it for so many new technologies. And, and it
0: seems like once the cat's out of the bag, and you approve it, and people start implementing it, and they start getting paid for it, and they start seeing results. Now this, so this right. bear with me. I'm a, I'm a cardiologist, and, and we're gonna stop picking on cardiologists in a second, we're gonna pick on some other people, but cardiologists mm-hmm. see that someone's having chest pain, they're having discomfort, they intervene, they get better. They see it time and time again. It becomes woven into the fabric of their practice and their experiential understanding of and their relationships with patients who have expectations that the cardiologist is going to do something. And so there's patient expectation, there's publicity, they're talk to each other. There's a whole thing that happens. Now, now you're going to have to unwind this and go, actually guys, we never really studied this right you could do the same sham procedure and patients will get better. So mm-hmm. your act of touching the patient, of mm-hmm. engaging with the patient, of being you in the presence of the patient, help that patient along with the medicine that we mm-hmm. gave. Exactly. So it's okay to not do the stent, but man, it's hard. Right. And also like they're already, you know, they're gonna push back and say, but this is our bread and butter too. This is how we make money. Right. And you mentioned fee for service. If, if we switch to fee for value, it's still like, well then maybe we need less of interventional cardiologists. So that means there's another bread and butter issue. So how do we think about those things? It's, it seems intractable. I know it's not because there's a solution to every problem, but what, <laughs> how, how do you think like about that. it? Rita? I'm worried like even for you to write an op-ed like that, Part of me in the back of my mind is like, you know, some random community cardiologist is going to do it, like come by and like, you know, inject you with, uh, you know, two drugs that interact, and, and, and you'll you, you mm-hmm. know you'll die without anyone ever being able to trace it. I mean, I'm joking, mm-hmm. but I I'm also so. <laughs> yeah, for you I yeah. am. But I, I worry yeah, about right. people's motivations were only as good as our conditioning and our incentives. You know, so how how do you think about this? That's a lot to put on your plate.
1: Well, but they're all good questions. Oh. I'll tell you, a few years ago because I have been thinking about these issues for a while. And and as we said, I mean, I do think highly of my cardi, my interventional cardiology colleagues, but as you said, it's, it's very hard to look at it, study objectively when that's what you go to work to do every day, right. even take out the money, just the culture, the whole belief that you're fixing something. I mean, if you haven't listened to the consent, we could fix you or we could do nothing. That's medicine. Right. I yeah. mean, that's essentially what I've, heard some people at other institutions say. But so and and I have I don't know if it's true, but a colleague told me like five or ten years ago there's a Society for Cardiac Angiography and Intervention. It's the other big interventional cardiology group. They mm. had a list of the top ten threats to interventional cardiology at the meeting and I was on the list. Oh
0: what? Hold
1: on, I'm gonna shine a little more about <laughs> yeah. you because-
0: okay. I, I, I want people to carefully and, and clearly see the enemy of cardiology, the, the oh, okay. top 10, who you. is a cardiologist, Thank right? You. No, I could, I, I could actually, I'm unsurprised by that. And you know what, honestly, if I'm being fully authentic, Mm -hmm. part of the reason I was drawn to invite you on the show is I Mm -hmm. saw Mm -hmm. in between the lines of what you were writing, a Mm -hmm. great personal risk taker who says, Mm -hmm. I am part of this tribe, but Mm -hmm. I'm willing to speak truth to the tribe in service of not just our patients, which is so important, but the tribe itself, Mm -hmm. because we are a community of people who went into this to help people right and if our next generation of cardiologists comes out and says you know what okay this thing was a thing we did it we did it with good intent mm-hmm. we did it with good outcome but mm-hmm. we could do it better because mm-hmm. we've learned now then that's a beautiful thing so right. thank you for doing that that's work that's right it's really and that's hard right.
1: and that is why i do it because i do believe i mean i went into medicine to help people and i believe that's what most doctors did but you asked earlier like how did i start looking at these things mm-hmm. you know i think it was a number of things. I grew up in Brooklyn way before it was hip in a house, you know, where pretty modest and we didn't waste anything. We didn't, you know, my parents were the original reusers and recyclers. And I, w- I was taught, you know, not to waste things, not if you could, and... I then Are, are your put parents myself, Jewish? <laughs> yeah, are they Jewish? Yeah, Redberg, because because
0: yeah. as as an Indian yeah. immigrant uh, of, of Zoroastrian yeah. parents, same thing. Yeah, it's like you don't waste anything; right. you reuse everything. Yeah, yeah it's that's a why I'm carrying them. They're, well, also
1: for the environment now, but they were even before the environment. They reused their. That's bottles. why we're
0: shooting this in my garage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but and I put myself through with the help of work scholarships and loans through medical school, through college and medical school, and and when i got to medical school i was at the university of pennsylvania and mm. at that time john eisenberg was there and he luck- luckily was my sort of medical school advisor because i was planning to do general internal medicine at mm. that time and he was doing a big study and this was in the 70s so it was before email so he he would send a note every day to the house staff the trainees and ask them about the daily laboratory tests that everyone draws every morning. You know, if you go into the hospital, you get the chemistries, we look at your sodium, potassium. And he was trying to make them think about, do they really need to have these tests every day? And so the note would say, we noticed you got a chem seven on your patients. Did you feel that these results changed the management of the patient? Did it lead to something that was really good for the patient? Could you have done the same thing without these test results? And then he looked at whether this had any impact on the house staff' laboratory test ordering, mm. and it had no impact on mm. the laboratory test ordering, because, like you said, it's kind of their culture, mm. but it had a big impact on me, because I was a second-year medical student, and I thought, "Wow, everything that the, the house staff, who to me were like brilliant like gods, because they were already done with medical school and doctors and training. And I thought. He's questioning what they're doing, and I just assumed that everything that I was being taught to do had a good reason, and he explained, and we went through the literature, and I understood there was absolutely no studies that ever showed that people were better off if you did these daily laboratory tests on inpatients than if you didn't. And so it really changed the way I sort of went through the rest of my medical training because it made me start to question, is this for any kind of test or procedure? are people really going to be better off because I'm ordering this test or I'm going to do this procedure? And if I can't, say yes they are, then I wouldn't do it. Because like you said, everything has some harms to it. Yeah, Everything.
0: Every single thing. That That's such a powerful lesson for yeah. young people in training. I had the same lesson at UCSF. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget who it was, but they would basically say, look, if, if your test isn't gonna change outcome, don't mm-hmm. even think about doing it. Don't think about malpractice, don't think about covering your butt, all this. Because yeah. that's a part of it too, right? Is, right. is people are worried if I, uh, an error of omission. right? And they're less worried about errors of commission exactly. where I do something and it leads down a path of what we call iatrogenesis right the physician causing harm that that ends up costing the patient their their life or limb right we, we we hardly get penalized for that we get penalized for I didn't order the unnecessary CT scan that would have caught the cancer that we didn't suspect so right it's that kind of conditioning that, and we're fear-based creatures right. so when I saw that too it changed yeah. my whole thinking yeah. I, and and it's interesting because I think there is and this is me speculating now, but mm-hmm. I think there's a group of people that are unhappy in the matrix of conditioned mm-hmm. um expectation, and they tend to chafe against it and they're always looking for holes and where it could be wrong and I think those people tend to um be marginalized in medical culture mm-hmm. because it is it is a kind of a it evolves into a group think because then we have consensus and then mm-hmm. we have our procedures and the standard of care and so on. And, and what we forget is that, no, no, medicine is always kind of pushed forward by questioning, by Ignaz Sem- Semmelweis going, mm-hmm. you know what, if you wash your hands, mm-hmm. uh, right. you don't die of peripheral sepsis when you're pregnant and you're right. delivering and And he was, you know, he died in an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. So this is like the seminal teaching that we do have to question and understand when consensus is, is appropriate. Like for example, vaccines. Right. You can question vaccines, we did, Mm-hmm. We have a lot of answers now mm-hmm. that they're right. okay. Think, so, it, yeah. it's that kind of thinking. So, how do you think how do you think we can change the culture? Is it that we need to just stop reimbursing for these things? Like how, how do you yeah. start to do it?
1: Well, believe me, I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it, it takes a lot of steps, but I think it I mean reimbursement sort of changing fifa service and orienting our thinking more towards outcomes and value based payment would definitely help mm. but it it's not it, it is the culture mm. and the culture now is just to, to order more tests it's always it's generally accepted that more tests are better than less tests that a higher tech solution is better than a low tech solution you know if one pill is good two pills must be better and a little information can't hurt. Yeah. And actually, it's why I'm editor of JAMA Internal Medicine. We we launched this series called Less Is More when Deborah Grady, one of the deputy editors, and I were talking. And it was actually right after um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force issued the mammography guidelines back in 2010 when they said that women between the ages of 40 to 49 um, we're going to have more harms than benefits mm. from screening mammography, mm. and if you
0: remember, remember that it, was very it was a poorly received. Storm, yeah. yeah, and it was a lot of, and it was a storm from everyone—a storm from breast cancer patients saying, "If I hadn't had my mammogram, mm. and so on, and so forth, and so on, and so forth," not understanding the data and the statistics behind why that recommendation was made.
1: Exactly, yeah. and the recommendation was just because there were more harms than than good that okay. came out of mammography in that age group, and we thought, well, people must not be getting the message about harm, mm. you know, because nobody would want to be harmed. Right. And so so we launched the Less Is More series and we, you know, encourage uh, research submissions as well as people to share their own experiences, particularly trainees in the series called Teachable Moments. So trainees can write in and say, you know, I had a patient who suffered a complication from an, an unnecessary test. And, you know, this is what I learned from it. And then share, you know, how... We all could learn, so we would avoid this unnecessary test in the future. But it is part of the culture, too. And so when you're making rounds, you know, uh, you're right. The house staff, I think, are more afraid of not ordering a test because nobody, the, the kind of attending you had is not yet the norm, but hopefully. Right. Where, and so if someone says, oh, why didn't you order, you know, the serum magnesium, it's just much easier to have ordered more tests mm. than to explain why you didn't get a test that you didn't think was necessary. Mm. It, it,
0: it. The editor of JAMA Internal Medicine does a series called Less Is More. Mm-hmm. That's you. How was that received?
1: So that has been received very well. That's good. I, think. That's I mean, certainly the people we hear from are a lot of doctors who say they're really happy that we're talking about it, that they think you know the profession has gone a little too far in terms of embracing doing more things without sort of critically evaluating it because mm. there's so many more things we can do now. I think it was different 30, 40 years ago when you know we didn't have all the armamentarium that we do now, but you know, it now... was,
0: that, that's when Sam Shem wrote House of God and he yeah. was talking about, well, you either give them the LASIKs or you don't, or yeah. you, you know, you give them the steroids or you don't, right? And still, that was a critical decision point because if you screw it up. You know, you could hurt somebody. And uh, now it's like we're drowning in this stuff. And like you said, I think a better tech solution is always perceived as more effective. And then you end up with disasters like vaginal mesh. Mm-hmm. And so so I, quick, quick, quick aside. I have a very uh, close relative who was talked into doing Mona Lisa Touch, which is a vaginal resurfacing procedure mm-hmm. for you know uh, for incontinence and and that sort of thing, um, by their obstetrician, who's a community obstetrician.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No evidence this thing works. Mm-hmm. Some evidence that it can cause harm, um, but high compensation for it because it's not insurance covered, and self pay mm-hmm. kind of thing, and so this obstetrician who I happen to know is a very good doctor mm-hmm. buys into this idea that I can help this person with this laser remodeling mm-hmm. and they can feel better and they, mm-hmm. and the patient's buying into it because they're looking for a relief that is beyond a pessary or something mm-hmm. that they feel is unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then the FDA came out and gave a warning about it and mm-hmm. said, you know, this is not something that people mm-hmm. should be doing. And I'm having this conversation with this relative going, you know, This is the thing as a patient, we Mm -hmm. have to ask difficult questions. What's the data? And it's hard because we don't know as patients, we don't know how that, we want our doctors to be the experts. We want a paternalistic or maternalistic doctor to tell us what to do, but that's not how you get the best care. Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode, it's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, Join our supporter tribe, zdogmdcom forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. And I think one of the things I saw in your history being, you know, JAMA Internal Medicine editor, which is by the way amazing. I want to ask you at some point how you deal with things like retractions and other mm-hmm. things like that. There may be another show, but mm-hmm. the 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 um the idea that um, shared decision making with our patients.
1: Mm-hmm
0: having them be a part of this decision. What are your hopes, dreams, and fears, and wishes, and goals, and here's my knowledge base, and I'm your shepherd, I'm like mm-hmm. a, almost a shaman in this, like let me sit with you mm-hmm. in a place that's kind of sacred, which is the exam space, or mm-hmm. the consult room, and let me actually be compensated to, to mm-hmm. take care of you that way, and let's talk about this in a way that you're actually also getting some healing benefit from even talking to someone who cares about you. Right. But instead it's like, hey, I have this great new laser. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> the
0: laser, and we can resurface the inside right. and make you feel better.
1: Right? It's kind of
0: heartbreaking.
1: It really is heartbreaking, in, because I think it, it's so true what you said. I, mean, I think medicine, I feel it's a great privilege to be a doctor and people trust us and I feel that we have to earn that trust by doing the right thing. Mm. And I think so many people do come into my office and your office and doctor's offices and they want to talk. And and it's very therapeutic to talk about whatever it is that's bothering them, whatever physical or other ailment that's bothering them. And so often now we have this big list of things that you have to check off in for every visit, particularly for internists, the primary care physicians. But for all of us, I think everyone's feeling so much time pressure and there's this perception that um, you have to move on to the next patient and can't let people talk. And I think it's very harmful and the reimbursement system kind of feeds it. But I I think a a lot of times, like doctors will say, well, I ordered the test because that's what the patient wanted. Mm. I I don't think that is really what the patient wants. I think patients, they want to know they're healthy and they want reassurance, but they would be happy for you to talk to them and explain why they don't need the test. I do that, and or they don't need this particular medicine. I see a lot of patients who want to get off statins who are in primary prevention, and they're very happy to know that they don't actually need to take that medicine that was really making them uncomfortable, and that they're not going to die if they stop their statins. And and you know people people feel relieved. I mean, now we've gotten I feel too far into the to the realm of taking perfectly healthy people and labeling them with pseudo diseases like pre-diabetes i mean what is that mm. I mean, as deborah grady said we're all pre-dead you know <laughs> it, it's not a disease you know this is and so it's like when people don't have symptoms i think we should leave healthy people oh, alone
0: man you are just you're you're speaking my language and you're rifling right up against the mainstream of medicine which is already struggling to make ends meet in some way and feel like an extra 25000 or $50,000 would make their lives so much happier, an extra five minutes with patients. But the truth is, mm-hmm. what would make their lives happier, mm-hmm. this is my theory, coming from personal experience, is the ability to connect with our patients on a human level, to reassure them that everything's going to be okay, that they don't have a disease. Mm-hmm. At our clinic, Turntable Health, when we were running it in, in, in Las Vegas, we had a whole wall dedicated mm-hmm. to brown paper bags full of medications that we taken patients off mm-hmm. it wasn't oh we got him to take his mm-hmm. metformin or we got him to do mm-hmm. this or we made a new diagnosis of prediabetes by screening everybody and finding a hemoglobin a1c a one C of 5.467 <laughs> yeah, or whatever it is right. it's like no 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 we spent time with this person we learned their hopes and their dreams we, we explained to them what they read on the internet and walk mm-hmm. through it with them and mm-hmm. how do you do that you need a little more time but really you need a change in culture you need a team to support your ability to do that mm-hmm. and you need an electronic record that supports the management and care of patients, rather than just being a billing platform. And if you can do that, mm-hmm. at the minimum, I think we can start to see people will start to look for holes in our treatments. They're like, doctors will be trained to go, okay, but does that really work? Mm-hmm. Let's really look at this. Does that spine surgery is it really necessary mm-hmm. for that? Mm-hmm. You know, spine? Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you it, it just just humor me for a second? Sorry, give me a list of like five or six things, whatever you can think off the top of your head that we do commonly that really doesn't have great evidence that we should be doing it
1: well spine surgery is a very a good start i mean a lot of the knee arthroplasties you know and again we didn't know that until they they did sham knee arthroplasties and people improved just as much again because it was subjective i mean we overuse a lot of antibiotics Mm, thousand percent yes uh, you know for I mean, 90% of upper respiratory infections are viral and are going, it's my father, they'll go away in seven days if you take the medicine and a week if you don't, as my father used to tell me. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, statins for primary prevention to me is a huge, you know, even, I, I, I don't see the benefit for just about anyone in primary prevention, but A lot of the patients I see, even by the guidelines, they're low risk and wouldn't benefit from any Kind of statin use. And I think that's a big area of overuse. Let me pause
0: on the statins for a second because this one's a little bit close to home. My dad mm-hmm. is on tenalipitor. My mom's on tenalipitor purely because, uh, you know, their cardiologist said, well, you're Indian and primary prevention and there's some family history. And my dad is tired. And as he mm-hmm. gets older, he has symptoms that I listen to him and I go, you need to stop that statin, but he's almost superstitiously attached to it now. If I Mm -hmm. stop it, what if I have a heart attack or a stroke Mm -hmm. or something? How how do you talk to your patients about statins like that if you're taking them off?
1: Mm -hmm. I just go through the data. I mean, if they Mm -hmm. want to stay on it, I just explain to them that, you know, the data for, and you can do the risk calculator and see, you know, what percent risk is, because even in the guidelines, like Mm -hmm. people that are well, it used to be less than 10% 10 year risk. Now, for reasons that are not clear, it was dropped to less than 7.5%. But a lot of those people are in that low risk group. But even in the high risk group, I mean, the, what the data shows, even in, for high risk primary prevention, is that if you took 100 people who took statins every day for five years, two out of 100 would avoid a heart attack and nobody would live longer. Hmm. So that means 98 people have absolutely no benefit from Mm -hmm. taking the statin every day for five years. And a lot of people have side effects that I think are much more dangerous than the statin because they're unable to walk, they're unable to enjoy life, they're fatigued, they have muscle aches and pains and they can't exercise, which is, I think, much worse than, you know, whatever their cholesterol is. But I feel like a lot of things, if you have to have a test to find out you have the disease, you really need to look carefully at that data. And mm. you know, high cholesterol, in my opinion, is not a disease.
0: What an interesting way to look at that. If you have to have a test to find out that you have a disease, you should be careful and look at that. That's really, really, really insightful because it's true, like high cholesterol, is it a disease? Is it is it a marker of something else? Yeah. A, a lifestyle issue, a stress issue, right. some genetic issue. There's so many things, right? And I'm sure Dean Ornish mm. and these other guys are very much into that whole field. Um, but 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 the idea of statins being... And when, let's just clarify what primary prevention is. It means you're trying to prevent your first heart attack or stroke or bad. Or outcome.
1: first blockage, right? You don't have angina. You don't have a stent. Right? Nothing. You don't, right.
0: Maybe you have high, high lipids. Right. By, you might have high testing.
1: lipids and you might have a family history, but mm-hmm. that's still that's primary it. prevention.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what's crazy? My dad didn't even have really high lipids. Yeah. And I think, you know, here's an interesting, again, I'm going to, I'm going to hash on this for a second because it really upset me when it happened. He had some atrial fibrillation mm-hmm. and the cardiologist for some other reason, I think because his brother, my dad's brother had a uh, MI at age 41. Mm-hmm. His dad's brother lives in India, mm-hmm. is a dentist, very high stress, mm-hmm. different world, breathing right. diesel smoke all day, mm-hmm. all of this. Right. So my dad gets a calf. Mm-hmm. This was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and they find some trace mm-hmm. calcification in mm-hmm. the LAD. Mm-hmm. My dad pretty much loses his mind. He's an internist, mm-hmm. so he's like, I better take a statin, I better do this, I better mm-hmm. do that, he's walking on the treadmill, he's doing all of this, and to this day, I, I feel like that was such a disservice
1: mm-hmm. yeah. that, that it
0: didn't do him any good, it made him more anxious, right? and it, it made him nervous about exercising too because he'd be worried about, well, I have this thing and I don't want, I'm, oh my God, dad. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, what we that's what we can sad. do inadvertently. That's it right. is very sad. And I bet a lot of people listening who are gonna leave comments are gonna tell stories about their loved ones or themselves who mm-hmm. went through this. Now you had gone you were going through a list, so you got to statins, we talked about knees and spines, spines and we talked already about cardiac stents. Um what about like unnecessary C T scans and oh. radiation? Well
1: there's a huge number of unnecessary CT scans. I mean, the numbers have risen exponentially on our use of CT scans, and part of that is, I mean, we get nice pictures, but again, you have to ask, did you need the pictures? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why does everyone with stomach pain have to get an abdominal CT scan? And my colleague at UCSF, Rebecca Smith-Beinman, has done a lot of really nice work, you know, documenting n- not just what the increase in CT scans is, but how we're not very careful about keeping the lowest radiation dose possible for each CT scan. Mm. So we published a paper of hers in JAM Internal Medicine almost 10 years ago now, where she did a survey and found that there was between a threefold and like 40-fold difference in how much radiation you got from the same CT scan, depending on the day you got it or the institution you got it. That's it crazy. Var- yeah. And so there's just so that. much yeah. radiation, both, some from unnecessary testing and some maybe you needed the CT scan, but you should have had much lower dose radiation.
0: Right. And now, you know, in the transcriptions, they write ALAR or whatever as low yeah. as reasonable. And I don't exactly. know what that means exactly. Right. My wife's a radiologist and I'm probably, if I told her this, she'd be like, oh no, we do. good." But yeah. no, actually that's not true. No, she's told me. She's like, no, we're very, we were very cognizant of this issue, especially since that study came out. Because yeah. I think that raised, and that that's why, that, that's why, data and evidence mm. actually matters, right? Yes. And that's your other hat, right? You're, you're right. editor-in-chief editor for JAMA Internal Medicine. What do you think the state is of our evidence now? Are we, is peer review broken? Is it working? Are we putting mm. out evidence that's good?
1: Um, I, I, I do. And I guess some cancer screenings, I think, are in the like... Oh, actually, yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. Cancer screening in older people, you know, the test was generally recommend stopping at age 75 because it takes at least 10 years to see any benefit from even indicated cancer screenings. But a lot of people are still getting cancer screenings into their 80s and 90s. TAPs, mammogram. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: You see it all the time. And right. then you get a false positive and then you have to chase it down. And right. then you cause harm and anxiety. Yes. Um, So, so, I mean, there's quite a bit, and I bet there's a lot more that we haven't identified that doesn't work Mm -hmm. that we do. Oh, yes. I mean even even now even if you look at it like an appendectomy and i'm going to mm-hmm. pick on something just randomly yeah, sure. appendectomy like right. well medical management of appendectomy is actually a thing too mm-hmm. and antibiotics and so on and That's so the question right. is do you need to cut someone open with the risks of creating someone who maybe has adhesions and mm-hmm. p- potential small bowel obstruction in the future and uh, wound infection whatever right. i mean the risks are low but they're there exactly if you could treat with antibiotics right and again i don't know the literature on it but i know that it's an ongoing study
1: right there was a a study that suggested you could do equally well with antibiotics. And that's one of those things where like
0: surgeons and other doctors will go, well that's one of the great success stories, man. Is that you would mm-hmm. die if you don't get that appendix mm-hmm. out. But the thing is, have we ever done the <laughs> the study except mm-hmm. in people who right. were not surgical candidates in which they have bad protoplasm, as we say to begin with, right. they're not a surgical candidate because they have a lot of other medical problems. So they may do worse no matter what you do. Right. So these kind of things and Designing those trials and making sure mm-hmm. that they're very smartly run mm-hmm. is probably a big component of that. Absolutely. Um, and and you have to be vigilant about that. But I think um, I think going down that route. You know, what are the challenges you see in terms of getting this message out? Because mm-hmm. you have these different platforms. You're a UCSF professor, JAMA, mm-hmm. Internal Medicine. You have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you write for Washington Post and New York Times and L.A. Mm-hmm. Times and these are big
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: entities. Um, do you feel like you're being heard? Do you feel like this is an uphill battle still? What do you think we need to do as a tribe of healthcare people, my audience, to help mm-hmm. you do this?
1: Well, I feel both of those things. I feel I'm being heard, but I feel it's an uphill battle mm. because because um, there's a lot, you know, our culture is still oriented, I think, towards doing more and doing more. And so people are thinking about it, but I think... We haven't quite changed our medical education, we haven't changed our sort of culture of medicine, we haven't changed our payment system, and there's a very heavy influence of pharmaceutical you know, both drug and device lobbying that really influences um, how decisions are made. Like, I used to be on the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Commission, and Mm. we were a to a large group of experts that review evidence from Medicare on particular technologies that they ask you to look at, and for example they um, this was 2004 I think they wanted to look at they asked medcac to look at cardiac CT and we looked at all the evidence and it was clear that there was no benefit to p- people that were having cardiac CT They weren't any better off than they were without it mm. based on the literature back at that time but for really political reasons medicare instead of issuing a non-coverage decision which is what you would if you look at the evidence you ask your experts is there any evidence of benefit they say no you would say okay we're not going to cover it because that would but that's not what happened instead Mm -hmm. medicare declined to issue a coverage decision on cardiac Mm -hmm. ct Mm -hmm and within a year there had been a lot of lobbying from the people that make the cardiac ct and from the radiologists and the cardiologists that mm. read the or do the cardiac ct on the regional level, because if there's not a national coverage decision made in Medicare, then it goes to the regional carriers. Mm. And the regional carriers, after this big lobbying effort, within a year, all had very permissive cardiac CT policies. Mm. And then people bought their machines, which are not cheap. And so, you know, once you buy the machine, you tend to keep it busy. And Medicare noticed a huge increase in cardiac CT. So three years later, they try to pull back the coverage?
0: No way. It's never going to happen.
1: No, that's what, you know, once you start doing something, is, and that's why it's so important mm. to kind of look at it, but there are, you know, lobbying is just one force, but it's pretty powerful. I mean, I think, you know, the drug and device lobby is the biggest lobbying group in D.C. There's, mm. you know, multiple lobbyists per congressional representative. And so even, you know the the last uh, big legislation, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was passed um, in the, the end of the Obama administration, you know, said that we were going to require even less evidence to approve new drugs mm-hmm. and devices. Mm-hmm. It was, from what I've heard, very heavily influenced by the pharma and um, device lobbies. It's so but in- Congress went along.
0: It's so interesting because as a as a muggle, a non-medical person, mm-hmm. um, if you're a patient, you're going to want the barrier in your mind, the barrier to experimental and 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 medications being approved, to be very low, so that you can get this So pharma can innovate. This is the the this is the party line, right? Mm-hmm. And and so on and so forth. And so anything that drops those regulatory hurdles is going to be better, until you realize that. When you get a drug out on the market Mm -hmm. that has no benefit, costs 3x what the current drug uh, does, has side effects that have not been adequately picked up by post-marketing surveillance because we don't have a super robust apparatus, especially for devices, especially for devices, um, then they would realize that, oh, we're probably killing more people Mm -hmm. than we were before. Now, when you really feel that, there would be outrage in the streets, but it's very hard to feel that, and it's, mm-hmm. and we're, and it's made more difficult by the financial incentives of these large companies to lobby. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to actually villainize the companies or the people because what they're doing is behaving Mm-hmm. Entirely exactly. rationally, this right. If I were there and I'm yeah. my fiduciary responsibility to my stockholders, right. I would be sending people to K Street, lob, lobbying and lobbying and lobbying and sure. lobbying, because that's what you do. So they're very good business people. Kudos to them. We right. need to change their business model by changing the incentives, by changing the structure of how we how we do these things and that means really looking at the evidence remember when when ACA started to come out they were talking about using evidence-based medicine more right but where did that go what happened there you know you start that's what to think, I wonder what happened there yeah when they're writing the bills you know pharmaceuticals are like well you know this piece or whatever it is and the medical device piece you, you've seen or mm. heard of the documentary The Bleeding Edge I imagine yeah,
1: I was in The Bleeding Edge you were in it yes
0: You know what's funny? I thought I recognized you when I saw you because I did a whole show on that where Uh I watched it and you were in it. So, what was your role in that? Were you talking about.
1: Um, I talked a little bit about device regulation and the process. The 510K. The more general, the 510K and and the PMA.
0: So, what do you think the average listener here should know, just distill from that whole world of medical device approval, what, what is it that can help them when they're making decisions about devices?
1: Well, the kind of questions that you were mentioning earlier that, patients should ask their doctors about, you know, what is the evidence? I think it's really important to ask that for devices, you know, what is the evidence, you know, how good was the evidence? Were there any clinical trials? I mean, now there are devices that are a lot on the market without any clinical data showing their benefit.
0: Right, because they're substantially similar to a prior generation or something, right? Exactly. That's 510K or whatever. 510K. 510K, yeah yeah exactly and and so i forget the name of the device that was the uh, sterilization device they were using as sure sure yeah and after i did that show yeah. and i basically gave this kind of balanced opinion of what i thought the challenges were with medical yeah. devices so many patients who've had mm-hmm. that device reached out and and would tell stories and anecdotes and it's very hard to hear you know yeah. and again who without the raw data without the trials how can you know because the problem with anecdotes is they don't create they're not science in themselves to the start right but they're not science and so you have to study it and yet we're not incentivized or required to do that properly that's the big challenge
1: that's right and i think as you said it it takes change on a lot of level but we and it's hard just for patients because i think we've you know, I think it is going to take patients to be outraged, but I don't think most people realize that these devices that doctors are recommending may not have. High-quality evidence of benefit. Mm. I mean, they might certainly some devices are great and life-saving, and mm. you know we're very grateful for them. But there are definitely other devices that are dangerous mm. and shouldn't be used. And I don't think patients are in a position to be able to separate that.
0: How can we and expect that, them
1: to? No, you know, we're I saying, don't oh think be, we a, be can.
0: a be a more educated patient. Yeah, but that's hard. Even doctors, like I, my my, my you know, my dad's a doctor. He right. chose to get that stent, because his cardiologist was like, yeah, you need, I mean, not stent, you need, you need to get Mm. the angioplasty. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, how a patient has no chance, no chance if we're struggling. And I think that's got to be the next wave of changes. We have to lead people in our own tribe to say, listen, we can do better and we can be empowered. Because one of the things like, I think this physician burnout thing, I've talked Mm. about it reframing it as moral injury, which is an externalization saying, it's not so much us, it's the system, but I need to re frame even that reframing and say this is true, but the other piece of it is there, there are ways we frame our own purpose mm-hmm. that can so much change, our, our thinking and our feeling and our experience with our own careers and one of those framings is, hey, I went in this to help people. So if I'm having a bad day or I'm having a struggle or I'm worrying how how can the system be overcome and I can reconnect to the, oh, the reason I'm stressed about that is not mm. this this stress going into the ether and me just struggling and it's a fight or flight response. It's I'm stressed because I care. Mm-hmm. I care about my patients. I care about the people that I work with. I care about that. so this stress is okay, this is stress that will build resilience, and I'm gonna now reframe my experience before I go in the room that, hey, you know what, even if I have to spend an extra 10 minutes and run late, to actually explain to this patient, hey, this is why you don't need X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. in conjunction with them, listening to them, sharing the decision. It, it can transform your own experience of how difficult and, and untenable your job is. And that's something I wanna talk about more because I think it leads into mm-hmm. this idea of less is more. Like, you know what, let's let's have some self-compassion. You don't have to do everything mm-hmm. for people. It, that's not mm-hmm. what makes you a great doctor. What makes you a great doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA mm-hmm. or a nurse or a dietitian or whatever it is, a social worker, mm-hmm. is being present, witnessing who that patient is mm-hmm. and understanding and being compassionate towards yourself and your own limitations in that setting. So, more and more, I think if we can think in that nuanced way, and it's hard mm-hmm. because everything's reduced to a soundbite now, and medical mm-hmm. education has gotten so crazy and reductionist and like, let's get this test out of the way and let's do that and let's go through the rotation and click the boxes and, you know, kiss the attendings ring so one day we're the ring that's kissed. Yeah. It's a very, we've really got to rethink that. Um, and again, to bring it back to this, what intrigued me about you is you're one of the people who's, who are doing that. And I I just want to kind of wrap around this and also let you talk about anything you're interested in towards the end here. But how has that been for you just Mm -hmm. personally, as we come up on an hour, Mm -hmm. Um, personally as a professor, someone with a career, someone with a family, a woman in medicine, which is also, it's got its own, that's a whole talk in itself. Because mm-hmm. that's something you've studied as well too, is the discrepancies in how we study women in trials. Yes. How has this been for you choosing this particular path? Because mm-hmm. it would have been so much easier to just go the other way and kinda of go, Well, here's the new device and here's the, Right. Right. Has it been a struggle or has it been well, just I who mean, you are? It,
1: it would have been easier, but it wouldn't have been me. So ah. Listen <laughs> I mean, carefully me, to that, guys. That's you know, I thought about I mean, I'm often, you know, if I'm asked to, to debate, you know, to take the whatever side on that other people aren't taking and it would certainly be easier to, you know, but it doesn't feel right. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I really, and, and I have, I feel very lucky. I think I have a, a fantastic job. I love, you know, being a professor at UCSF. It's, I love the journal. I love working with students and residents and trainees and, I have research projects on medical device regulation trying to suggest how we could improve the evidence base and improve post-market surveillance and, you know, get the FDA more focused on the mission of protecting the public health and not so focused on getting things that may be dangerous to market quickly, which mm. is not innovation. That's just not a good idea. Mm. And so, and if I think about, well, it'll be easier not to do this, is, I've decided a long time ago, you know, I only up going around once and I have to do what I think is the right thing mm. to do. And and that's rewarding to me because, I mean, people do, just like you said, when I sit in an office with a patient and you can really talk to them and, you know, not order a, a test or a drug, but just, you know, talk about what's important to them and reassure them. It's very rewarding to me. Yeah. it's And I enjoy reward. my work. And so... Um, that's and it's, you know, so that's its own reward. But I would like to see, you know, sort of improvements in our healthcare system because what worries me is we spend so much money on healthcare in this country. And yet, so many people, even now, people with insurance, forget about that there's 35 million Americans without insurance, but even people with insurance can't get in to see their doctors. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, Doesn't suggest that we're spending our money very wisely. And
0: and, and that'd be one thing if our healthcare team was happy yeah they're unhappy right exactly They're increasingly suffering from the diseases of despair that mm-hmm. that we're seeing across the country and but more so because of this issue of they mm-hmm. they have this moral injury of trying to do the right thing like you said mm-hmm. but then feeling resistance in every way and being mm-hmm. having to serve so many masters and so i'm i'm so glad that you found a place that and, and ucsf is like that it's mm-hmm. a place that accepts this is what we need to talk about. It may not be the mainstream thinking, but it needs to be, and let's support that. And and I, before I let you go, I have to ask you, because I think this is so important, how are, are we doing women a disservice in how we study, uh, how we run clinical trials and things like that?
1: Well, I mean, unfortunately, women are underrepresented in clinical trials and in, in a lot of clinical trials and certainly in cardiology clinical trials. And so I have worked with a group of other really fabulous women trying to increase and, and increase awareness of the fact that women are underrepresented because women are different than men. Women's risks and benefits are different than men. And you just can't assume that, you know, the same profile in men is what's going to work in women. And, you know, I have colleagues say to me, well, you know, it would be too expensive to do a trial you know we have 80% men and 20% women and we can so it means that whatever result you find isn't going to be statistically significant it's not powered in women Mm. I said fine then just do the trial all in women and you can extrapolate it to men and they look at me like I'm nuts, you know, but I mean, that's what it's like. That's what we yeah. say to women all the yeah. time. And so, and women, you know, bleed more than men do. They have more procedural complications than men do. I mean, certainly in cardiology, the whole epidemiology is different. You know, women are 10 years older when they get heart disease. So Atypical everything symptoms, about, right. right, is different. And so it's really important to include, you know, women are basically 52% of the population Uh-oh. and they... You know, it should generally at least be represented in whatever proportion they get the disease. Right. And the same for, you know, racial and ethnic minorities. I don't think we should exclude older people from trials. I mean, we don't, we don't exclude older people from our practice and from our treatments. Why do we exclude them from the trials? Mm. I mean, then we say to, you know, an 85-year-old, yes, take this drug when the the risk and benefit profile is going to be so different than in a young healthy person that was studied right right the 90 year old on seven antihypertensives and oh, you're yes. like and they're falling and they're falling over how, how <laughs> yeah. as a
0: I'm a hospitalist right how many admissions for LOL in distress mm-hmm. yeah. is medication iatrogenesis a syncope passing out from low blood pressure or some other complication of a medication that was not doing them any good anyways that Mm -hmm. someone gave to check the box that okay i did this and they're on lisinopril or whatever now they have kidney failure and they have this and they have the hyperkalemia and, and, right. and arrhythmias and you're like, wait, what? And they somehow got a pacemaker and you're like, how did that happen? This is right. somebody who none of this needed to happen to and and I don't think we even count that in the total of medical errors. Right. When we talk about, oh, it's you know, the third leading cause, or it's the fourth, or it's the ninth, mm-hmm. who cares? We're not even counting like this huge piece of it. Just like we don't count home care and mm-hmm. lost work in healthcare expenses. Mm-hmm. And that's such a huge, if you really count all those things, exactly. and you count social, the social security funds going to paying for medical bills, exactly. you're talking about 50% of our GDP is going to healthcare. Yeah. And we get, number what, 29th or something in the developing world in outcomes? Yeah. So let's get woke about this stuff. Right. You know? We have to be screaming about this. So I'm really glad you came on the show, Rita Redberg, with the amazing, <laughs> you know, nineteen thirties actress name. It's so awesome. And it it, it um it, it means a lot, I think, that the audience heard your message because I've been talking about it, but I don't have oh. the credibility you have of having done this for a lot of your career, being mm. the editor-in-chief of JAMA, being a professor at, at UCSF, being a cardiologist, and still understanding that the data and, and the, the way we practice medicine has to be in service of our patients. And sometimes that means less is more. So thank you.
1: My pleasure. It was great to talk to you. And I hope you'll come back when
0: I'm outraged about another thing you've written. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.